Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. I write it up. They print it. Big headline. Top of the front. Larry Bird, this is my only contract. I'm leaving after this. And, oh my God, within an hour, all the Boston papers, it's a feeding frenzy. They're calling me to interview me. And I go, I have it on tape. I have it on tape. And then Bird comes out. They finally get track Bird down. And Bird says, oh, I just said that to that guy because he was bugging me. I wanted to shut him up, so I made the whole thing up. This was my first big story covering the Celtics. <laughs> From 94 WIP, it's Wired This Way, a show about the top sports personalities in Philadelphia, their lives, their stories, and their success. I'm Andrew Porter. Angelo Cataldi is a Philadelphia radio legend who you probably know for his tenacious style. Gabe, I've been doing this 28 years. This is the angriest I've seen the city at a manager in the first week of his tenure. His boisterous opinions. I'm still the only person in this city who has repeatedly and relentlessly attack the doctors who are employed by the Philadelphia 76ers. No one else has done this. And wing bowl. Molly Schuyler, 501 wings. She did it. She did it. But actually, throughout his entire life, the Pulitzer Prize-nominated writer and broadcast pioneers Hall of Famer has made calculated, rational, and practical decisions. That life begins in 1951 in Providence, Rhode Island. 10 pounds, 2 ounces. At that time, I I had the record for the biggest baby in lying in hospital in Providence. And um, I grew up in a family with uh, just a typical 50s family. Um, You know, the nuclear family, mom and dad, and a sister was three years older than me. And... um, I was an incredibly nerdy kid from the beginning. Very studious. Um, I was in the chess club. You know, all the things that you would expect a nerdy kid to do. But I did love sports. And that was the one thing. I guess a lot of nerdy kids didn't love sports. I loved sports because my dad did. And that really got me started. And your dad got you into sports. What what sport in particular? Well, baseball. Baseball was huge for him because he was... Uh, Italian guy who grew up loving Joe DiMaggio and he handed that down to me although I was more Mickey Mantle because that was my generation but but um it was a very big deal to him baseball was a really important part of our lives and um he was just a huge Yankees fan because of Joe DiMaggio now you grew up in Red Sox County very much so my sister is a huge Red Sox fan most of my relatives are big Red Sox fans. But if I had done that, my father, it wouldn't have gone well. My, fa- my father absolutely positively wanted me to be a Yankee fan. And I was one for a long time, most of the time until I got out here. And, and the Phillies had that run in um, 08, 
that kind of turned me around. But before that, I was a really a diehard Yankee fan too. Is that why you always leaned uh, Will over Bill Russell? Yeah, you know, it's funny because of that. that. That's a great way to put it. Because I was a Yankee fan in Red Sox country, I tended to be a contrarian in the other things. And I loved Wilt. I mean, I can remember when I fell in love with Wilt because back then the Celtics used to actually come to little old Providence once or twice a year to play a game. And I don't know how I got tickets. I think my cousin got them. And we were sitting right near courtside. And Will Chamberlain was on the court. And I was mesmerized. I had never seen a person that big in my life. And um, just watching him warm up, I couldn't get over. I, I just, it was like, I don't have to root for Bill Russell and the Celtics. They win every year. I'm going to root for Wilt. And I was a little kid, and I rooted for him my whole life. Did you play sports growing up? Yeah, I played a lot of Little League ball. Um, I played basketball, but not really in an organized way. Organized leagues weren't what they were then. Baseball was, but otherwise there wasn't. There was no soccer back then. But I played baseball. I played, you know, sandlot football. I played um, all the sports. We played in the streets all the time, wiffle ball and and other games and stuff. It was a very tight-knit neighborhood. But um, I played all the sports, but not particularly well. So now you get to high school. Um, you're in high school in Providence, Rhode Island as well? Yep. In and- Providence. I'm in the uh, the number one smart school, classical high school. It was nationally ranked as one of the best high schools in America. And what are, what are those years like? Are you focused on sports or, or academics, mm-hmm. or what's that like? Um it's funny, I, I, I re- reference them on the air a lot because the football players, I wasn't bullied by the, the, the athletic kids, but I couldn't relate to them well. I related more to the smart kids. So I, I was the vice president of the um, chess club. I was in a, a thing called the Junior Alliance Francaise where you would go to these meetings and just speak French. You would think I would have picked the language up, but I never actually did. I just, but I was all trying to get credit so I could get to a good school. Um, but I did. And it was funny. The last year, I just started to take a liking to um, the Gogolak brothers, who were kickers and, and the first ever side kickers, soccer style kickers. And I started practicing it, and I got pretty good at it. And for some reason, they they make an announcement. Coach Morrow makes an announcement. He needs a place kicker. And I went out for the team as a senior. And, and I have been practicing a lot. And I literally, the one kick I made, I scuffed. And I almost fell on my rear end. And the coach said, it's not going to happen here, son. It's not going to happen here. And that was my sole experience with any athletics in high school. Did you have any um, thoughts or or interest in sports media at the time? Yeah, I did. In fact, my desire to write sports happened then. It happened um, in high school. I I had an English teacher in the ninth grade, uh, Mrs. Youngren, who um, said, you know, you have a real flair for writing. You have a talent for writing. And you should explore that further. And no one had ever said that. I kind of was always doing better on testing in math than I was in English. 
but she kind of inspired me to do it. I ended up getting her again in, in the 12th grade, and she reinforced that that's what I wanted to do. And we had a lot of conversations, and in the course of those, she said, well, what do you love? And I said, I love sports. I love, And she went, well, maybe you should be writing about that. And that's when the, the idea, the germ of becoming a sports writer first came when I was in high school and got the encouragement of that teacher. And then you went to college, um, yep. Columbia? No, I went undergrad at the University of Rhode Island. Okay. And I did that because this makes no sense to me now when I look back on it. But I gave almost no thought at all as to what I would do when I got out of high school, except that I was going to college. I only applied to one school, the University of Rhode Island. And I only applied there because I knew a lot of kids that were going because it was a pipeline. And it was just like classical. You didn't have to apply. If you went to classical and you wanted to go to the state university, you could get right in. You could get a great deal. My parents didn't have a lot of money. It's close to home. It was close to home, which in Rhode Island, <laughs> everything's close to home right. in Rhode Island. And I just did it. And I got there, and I was there the second semester. It occurred to me that this school really wasn't for me. I, I, it was crazy. So I started taking more courses than I was allowed to. One one um, semester, I took seven courses and got seven A's, and I got out of the school in two years and nine months. I graduated an entire year ahead of my class, and and then I said, well, now I got to go to work, but that whole high school thing was really just, I didn't absorb high school, uh, I mean, college thing, I didn't absorb college the way you would, um, like, really love it. I didn't. I, I just... It went by in less than three years, and, and I was in the work world. My, my final semester, they gave me an internship at a newspaper, and I worked there. So did, what was your major when you are in under Journalism. Journalism, and I was a really good student, but I was a more of a book student than... I just got good grades. I, I passed tests. I worked hard, but I didn't really cultivate any real ability. Right. And then I did this internship the final semester and I happened to get a, an editor at the newspaper I was working at the Narragansett Times who was just a terrific teacher. And he really showed me everything I needed to know so that I could get into the newspaper business. But literally three years after I was out of high school, less than three years, I was working full time at a newspaper. I was 20 years old. Um, through this whole process, you're you're close with your parents at this point, and is is your dad, um, you know, excited about the sports media yeah. journalism thing? He really was, because my parents never went to college, and I can remember from when I was a little kid taking a dollar in every week to school. We had like we used to bank it, and they'd put it in the bank for you, and it was a big deal to him that I would um, go. My sister also went to college, but he didn't prioritize that the way he did with me. I was the man. I was going to be the breadwinner. It was a real old-style way of looking at life. And he loved it. I'm telling you, my dad. My dad's dream for me was that I would become a writer and I would work at the Providence Journal, his paper, the big newspaper, and that he would get to show his friends all the articles that I wrote. And for a period of time, it happened. I did it. I wrote columns. I did stuff like that when I was there. And he um, he really enjoyed that. That was, I think, 
once I left and ended up in Philadelphia, he kind of lost track and didn't care quite so much what I was doing. So, so you worked for how many years in, in Rhode Island? I, um, I was 21, 20, 21 when I, I started in the weekly newspaper. Um, I ended up working there for four years because simultaneously I, I was living for free as a house father in a sorority on the University of Rhode Island campus. That yeah, must have been fun. It was, it was interesting. You know, it's, it's a good thing I did because I didn't really experience college as a student. Uh-huh. So I experienced it more as a house father. And then I would you know, basically drive down 10 miles to where the newspaper was and help them put out the newspaper every week. And, um, and then in the fourth year that I was there, the, um, the guy that was the editor, Jerry Goldstein, left. He ended up going to the Providence Journal. He had been there a long time. And they called me in and they said, um, you were the assistant editor. You're now running the newspaper. And I was 25. And my head spin. I went, I'm running a newspaper. I don't know anything. How am I going to run a newspaper? And um, I only did it for nine months. Because even before that, I had already started the application process to try to get into Columbia. And, um, and, and I wasn't going to turn back for a job at a weekly newspaper running at, at 25. And I learned very quickly and you may notice I've never again been in management. All right. <laughs> I learned at right. 25. It was never going to be for me. It just, it wasn't right for me. I was not good at it. So you applied to Columbia. Why did you apply to Columbia? I applied to Columbia against the wishes of my advisor, a Wilbur doctor who was, um, the main guy, the main journalism guy at University of Rhode Island. And I went in to see him and I said, um, I'm going to apply to Columbia. And he laughed in my face. I mean, he went, now, first of all, no one had ever gotten into Columbia from University of Rhode Island, that journalism program. And secondly, my he looked at my transcript. He knew what I was doing. And when I was stockpiling all these A's, I was doing it in useless courses, horticulture, bush arranging, right? Which you could see, I'm not a landscaper. I, I took four home ec courses, five psych courses. I did everything within the boundaries of the school because to take as many courses as I did to get out that quickly, I took the easiest courses I could. And he said, they're going to look at these courses and laugh at you. These are serious people. You, you understand you're not ready to go to Columbia. And I went, well, I'm going to do it anyway. And and I did it. And you had to write all these essays. And um, it's probably the most amazing day of my whole life is when I got the envelope. And it wasn't just a little envelope. It had stuff in it. I have kept to this day what they sent me. What was in it? It was congratulations. We've accepted you into Columbia University. Here's your the booklet with all the stuff you have to get and all the stuff you have to do. I've kept it all these years. I still have it today. And it was, wow, 1976 That's cool. when it happened. And it was still, it changed my life. I mean, getting in to this day, I don't know how I did it. I mean, I had a great, great point average, but it was with all garbage courses. <laughs> and then I suddenly, here it is September, and I'm in this huge hall in the middle of Columbia University and, and I'm going to the best journalism school in the world. So you're going for how many years? Were you at one year. It's a one year program. The first day you walk in at Columbia, um, there's a big fishbowl 
and they tell you to come up and pull out a piece of paper. It's like a hundred kids. There's only about a hundred in the class. You go back and then some big professor comes up and he goes, welcome to Columbia and all. Um, we believe in throwing you in the deep end here. Um, open up the piece of paper. Um, there's a location somewhere within an hour and a half of here. Um, you should go to it, develop a story, come back, write it, and file it by 6 o'clock tonight. Right? Mm-hmm. I have been a, a, in New York before, but I, oh, my God. And mine said Co-op City. I had to go to Co-op City and find a story that I could report and bring back to them on the very first day that we started classes at Columbia. It was a, an amazing challenge. It was the best year I've ever had. I learned more than I did anywhere else. I had professors who were tough and challenging, and and I learned so much in that one year that it changed my outlook on everything. It made everything different for me. And you're living in New York? I was living in a condemned dormitory called Ruggles Hall. It's still there, believe it or not, on 114th Street. And I remember going in the first day, and I couldn't believe how disgusting it was. It was so dirty and awful. And I was in a single room, which was slightly bigger than a closet. And I had to live there for the year. And and the guy next to me had a really nice room. It was weird the way I was said. And he was a guy from Alabama. Boyd Campbell was his name. Nicest guy in the world. And we became good friends there. And um, and we both were like, we, we both the first day said to each other, how the hell did we get into Columbia? Seriously, how did we get in? We both couldn't believe it. We thought we had gamed the system or something. That's we couldn't cool. figure out how the hell we got in. But you know what? We both did well there. And by the end of it, we were different people. And then what happens? So then you're done the program at Columbia. I was done at the program at Columbia, and uh, my dad came out. That's the only time he ever came to Columbia. He came to my room, and he said, you told me it was a dump, but you didn't tell me it was this big a dump. Get out of here. I mean, he's literally helped me move the stuff out because he doesn't want me there one more minute. Um, I leave there. And, and I realized his dream. It didn't happen immediately. I assumed that when I would say I went to Columbia, there would be like a huge line of people bidding for my services. That actually didn't happen. Um, I had to go back and wait a couple of months. And I finally got an interview at the Providence Journal. And they hired me. But at the lowest level you could be hired at. And, um, and I had to work my way all the way up. And the whole time, the only goal was to be a sports writer. I was like 27, then married, had a kid. And suddenly, like, I was fully into adulthood and trying to claw my way up to get to, to my dream job, which was to be um, a, a sports reporter. The most important thing Angelo got from Columbia was a piece of advice from his advisor, Norman Isaacs. As a young adult, Angelo used the advice to follow his passion as a sports writer and actually adopted Isaac's philosophy as his brand. I go there and I'm there for a year working in the same office where my previous boss at the small newspaper did. You're We're back in Narragansett. I'm actually in a satellite office okay. down in the southern part of Rhode Island okay. for a year. And then they summon me and and they, I have to go in and meet the executive editor and um, a guy named uh, Chuck Hauser. And Chuck sits me down and says, you know, you're doing a pretty good job down there, Cataldi. What's the long-term goal here? 
I said, well, long-term goal is to, to be a sports writer. And he goes, I had already said this to my advisor. At what were you covering? Everything? I was covering everything. I was covering um, local government and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And um, I had said the same thing to my advisor, Norman Isaacs, at um, Columbia. And he said, he got up. When I said to him, you know, at Columbia, like they're all like foreign correspondents and CEOs and all this stuff. And, and he said, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to write sports. And Norman Isaacs got up, shut the door of his office and said, don't ever breathe a word of that to anyone else while you're here. Because they'll never see you as a serious journalist if you want to do it. He said, I have no problem with you doing that. He had run the Louisville Courier Journal. He's a big name in journalism. I have no problem with you doing it. But if you're going to do it, you got to be better at it than anyone ever did it. you got to cover sports the way we cover government. you got to put their feet to the fire. you got to be tough with them. You can't be one of these cheerleaders. And it was a great conversation because now I'm in with the executive editor. And he says, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to be a sports writer. And he says, really? And I went, but I want to do it differently. And I told him the story of my advisor at Columbia. And he said, he said, I like the idea of what you're saying. I'm going to give you a chance to do it. But first, you've got to pay your dues. And I went, well, what are my dues? I've been down in the office covering school committees. Give me a break here. And he went, you're going to give me one year on Action Line. And I went, oh, seriously? Action Line back then was a, a column that people would write in when they thought they got a bad deal from a company. It could have been a, a you know Sears. It could have been a government agency. And they didn't get their justice. And then we had to call these companies and say to them, we've got this complaint. Do you want to resolve it? If you don't want to resolve it, we're going to write up that you didn't want to resolve it and it's going to hurt you. It was extortion. <laughs> and I had to put in a year of that. It was the absolute worst year of my career. But I did it because I really wanted to write sports. And after the end of the year, the executive editor made good on his promise and I moved into the sports department. For how many years did you do sports? I was in sports in, in Rhode Island for maybe five, four or five years I was there. I started covering um, some high school stuff for maybe three or four months, and then they moved me up to cover the Pawtucket Red Sox minor league baseball team, mm-hmm. and then they started giving me a shot to go up to, um, to to fill in for some Red Sox games up in Boston, and then the last two years, they made me a part-time columnist and a part-time, and the other rest of the time for all home games, not on the road at home. I covered the Celtics and and that was really, that was when I really got to cover a pro team for the first time. So right. now you're covering a, a team that you disliked growing up. Did that matter? You loved no, it anyway? It, it, believe it or not, it was weird that when I covered them, the first story I ever did, I got in huge trouble with Larry Bird because Larry Bird had come to Providence to visit shortly after he had been drafted by the Celtics and had signed a big long-term deal. And they, they sent me to meet him. But Larry was horrible with the media. So I'm there with Larry, and Larry's giving me nothing. So I'm starting to get a little more aggressive with my questioning. And finally, I don't know what happened. Something snaps with Larry. And he tells me, I just want, you know, 
since you want a story, I'll give you a story. Um, that five-year deal I did, that's my whole career. I'll never sign another deal. I'm only going to do the five years and get out. It's enough money so I can go back and be a gym teacher at French Lick, Indiana. So what he said to me, I wrote it up. Editor calls me in. Are you sure of this? I said, I got it on tape if you want to hear it. I taped everything and I didn't trust anyone. And what year is this? Bird is what? what Bird had just come out of Indiana State and he was just going to the South. He had been drafted but had never played for them. Oh, gotcha. I write it up. They print it. Big headline. Top of the front. Larry Bird, this is my only contract. I'm leaving after this. And, oh, my God, within an hour, all the Boston papers, it's a feeding frenzy. They're calling me to interview me. And I go, I have it on tape. I have it on tape. And then Bird comes out. They finally get track Bird down, and Bird says, oh, I just said that to that guy because he was bugging me. I wanted to shut him up, so I made the whole thing up. This was my first big story covering the Celtics. <laughs> but um, I never liked Bird for a second. But I did love covering the Celtics because it was the bright lights in the big city. And um, and it was a lot of fun. And I did exactly what the advisor, Norman Isaacs, told me at Columbia. And I was nothing but aggressive the whole time I covered them. Um, to the extent that Bill Fitch, the coach then, had me removed from my station on the at the they used to give us Providence was like the third biggest paper in that in New England, so they gave us status at the main table, right on courtside, and he had me shipped up to the boondocks with the little papers, and and then I wrote a, I wrote a story on how he didn't like the way he was, the coverage was and he was trying to control it, and then um, the next day I'm down there for a game, and I'm doing a an impromptu news conference with the Boston Globe and the Boston Herald and all the big papers down there. What did they tell you? What's going on? And I get a call that night from the owner of the team, Harry Mangurian, who apologizes to me and says, we were totally out of line doing anything like that. You have every right to cover the team as aggressively as you want. And I was the one who always asked the, the, the hardest question. I just never understood people that went there to lob a softball up to a millionaire player or a big shot coach. I wanted to know what was going on and I asked the questions and a lot of people didn't take well to it, but it's kind of always the way I did it. And it really, it emanates from Columbia and the training they gave me in the year that I was there. Next, Angelo wrote a rather innovative column capturing the attention of the Philadelphia Inquirer, who happened to employ a man named Al Morgani, a man who would eventually become Angelo's radio co-host. So so do you pick Philadelphia? Does Philadelphia pick you? How does no, that come about? But then what, what happened was I was a part-time columnist. So I was writing two columns a week. And I wrote a column about right after Thurman Munson died. This would have been like 79 or 80, whenever he died. Um, I wrote a column about how people were making him out to be more than he ever wanted to be. That his, uh, I remember the column well because it got me a job, but he said, all I ever want to be remembered for is a player who went from first to third on a single. 
That was the way I started the column. I used that quote. And I wrote a column about how, why do we have to always glorify people beyond what they themselves even see themselves as? He's just a terrific player who died tragically early in his life. And we should just honor him for what he wanted to be known for. And I wrote this column. And it was submitted to a contest and it won first prize, Associated Press, um, Circulation, whatever it was. It wasn't like the big one. It wasn't like a globe. The secondary market circulation, it won in that category. And I got a call from um, the executive editor of the Inquirer, Jay Searcy, who had read the column. And he said, I, I, I think it was an amazing column. I love the column. I'm interested in bringing you here to Philadelphia. So he said, okay, he said, uh, come on in and visit with me and let's have a nice talk. So they put me up at a hotel. I had never been to Philadelphia. I came down here. I felt like a big shot, you know. I was 32 years old. No, I was 31 when they brought me down here. You bring your, your whole family? Um, no, no, I just came alone because okay. I was, I, uh, you know, this was like, wow. And the fact of the matter was my first wife at the time, she wasn't thrilled about leaving. No one leaves Rhode Island. Right. The, the thing about it is when you're in Rhode Island, usually you're there for life. It's family oriented, small place and all. But I never, I never had that same allegiance that so many other people had. So what I ended up doing is I came down, I did the interview. I thought I knocked it out of the park. I thought I nailed it, right? Months go by, nothing. Nobody calls me. So now it's like seven or eight months later, and I called nothing, no decision, no decision. And I went, well, you know what? He put the bug in now. I'm going to leave. So I sent out resumes. Um, and I just figured to myself, Columbia's going to get me interviews and stuff. And it got me an opportunity in Baltimore, at the Baltimore Sun, and an opportunity. And then it's funny. At that point, suddenly Searcy's excited. Now he wants me again. But until there was another newspaper, he really didn't seem at all motivated to hire me. And then he just called me back in and he said, um, would you like to work for the Inquirer? And I went, yeah, sure. Sounds great. It's what I've been planning for. And at that point, I then had to talk my wife into it. We had to pull up stakes and move everybody to the big city. And my father hated it, by the way. He just, no, no what, what are you doing that for? You're a Rhode Island kid. Don't leave Rhode Island. And I said, no, Dad, I got to leave Rhode Island. Did that didn't change your guys' relationship at all? Or was it contentious? Or No, was it wasn't. He, the, the thing was, he, he, my, he was, my father was so locked in. My father lived his whole life in one ward the fifth ward in the city of Providence, wherever he looked for, like they move once. He said to my wife, uh, to my mom, you were all, we can only live in the fifth ward. No, I don't know why he just, he was really locked in on exactly where he lived. I wasn't that way. My sister was kind of that way too, but I wasn't, I was like, no, let me just keep going here. And again, I think it was Columbia that kind of gave me the sense that I could go wherever I wanted to go. So I was thrilled to do it. I was excited to do it. Um, the first month I lived here alone, I, I, I then found an apartment because Al Morganti, this guy I had just met at the Inquirer, he um, rented me, he sublet, 
his apartment to me because he was living with the woman who would eventually become his wife. And I'm living in Al's apartment on a high rise um, off Spring Garden. Um, and I'm like, you know, completely out of place. I've never, I never even knew the city of Philadelphia. Now I'm working in it. It's crazy. So this is the eighties and, and print journalism is huge yep. in sports and radio. It's not huge. so much. So it's, no radio is not, not big at all. So you're not even thinking about radio at this point. Oh God, no, 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 no. That radio was never part of the plan. Writing was the plan. I was doing what I wanted to do, mm-hmm. but I got here and the only thing they had available for me to cover was the flyers for a year because Al was covering the 1984 Olympic Games. He was doing it right up to L.A., a whole year of coverage. Al was like the main Olympic writer that year for the Inquirer. So they said, um, just take your cues from Al. I, hadn't, I had never covered hockey at all. And I was Did you really, understand the game or not really? No. I, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I covered like five, four or five games when I was in Rhode Island. One of them was the game that set the record. The um, Flyers set the record at Boston Garden for like 36 straight games without a loss or something like that. And I covered that game and interviewed Bobby Clark. But I really didn't know anything about hockey, and suddenly I'm doing it every day. The guy on the other beat was a terrific writer, um, Jay, I can't remember his name, but he, he was a great writer. He was a great hockey writer, and I'm just trying to hold my head up above water. And Al's giving me clues. So Al's there, and he goes, all right, listen, here's how you do this. It's the easiest beat you'll ever have. He says, don't write ever for Saturday. No one reads the Saturday paper. When you're writing game stories, just write the lead and then throw a lot of quotes in because nobody gives a damn what you say. And and Al Al is not a lot different than he is now, right? And Al's giving me – and I basically just totally follow everything he said because what do I know? I don't know anything. He knew hockey. I was a very smart hockey guy. That's a very – it's funny you say that. It's a very practical approach similar to your approach. He always does. It was the same approach you took to get into Columbia. It was a very practical approach. You must have liked that. Al's a lot more practical than I am. (laughs) Al had an angle on everything he ever did in his whole life. But that's when I started with Al. It was like 1983, and I just came into the city, and and, – and Al showed me the ropes, and I got into a ton of trouble that year. I was attacked by the coach of the Flyers, Bob McCammon. I was rescued by um, Tim Kerr because um, I was asking really hard questions. It's what I always did, and he didn't like it. And, and basically, he got into a big fight with Bobby Clark because he thought Clark should take a week off before the playoffs and go down to Jupiter, Florida, and to just kind of take it easy for a week so he's ready for the playoffs. And he didn't want to do it, and I was really hammering away at the coach on why he would do something when he had a legend playing for him and doing something that the fans didn't want and Clark didn't want. And I was asking him, and he just flipped out. He went crazy. And Timmy Kerr, was he was chasing me, and Timmy Kerr (laughs) got him, literally, he stopped him. He was coming right at me. It was crazy, awesome. but but that's it has been part of my history that I've always been trained to do that, and um, it's got me into trouble. So I did that for the year. You always kept that aggressive approach. I did, okay. and and I always felt like that was what that was the deal I had made with Columbia. If you're going to do it, do it harder and tougher than anybody else does it. 
And I tried to do it that way the whole time that I was in journalism. And, and after the year with the Flyers, um, the guy who was doing the Eagles beat, great job, Jerry Longman. He ended up at the New York Times. Jerry was phenomenal. Um, he wanted off the beat, and they just handed me the Eagles. And I, I was, my mind was, I couldn't believe it. I said, oh my God, I'm, it's not a one-year thing. I'm the Eagles beat reporter. I can't believe that I'm the Eagles beat reporter. And I did that for a few years, and uh, I was handed the, this great story, Buddy Ryan, when he came to town. It was just luck, just right. being there at the right time. And me meeting up with Buddy with my approach and his approach, it was bound to set off, you know, fireworks. And that's what happened. Now we fast forward to 1988 and WIP and that whole situation gets born. In 86, I covered Ryan, Mm -hmm. and I covered him the way a journalist is supposed to cover a government agency. And um, it was a unique year of coverage. They submitted it um, for the Pulitzer, and it came in second. Um, and it almost won. I was told later that I really had a good shot at winning it, which really would have been bizarre. <laughs> but um, and then it was over, and everything was kind of settling down, and I was not feeling the same spark. And if that happens, I'm I'm bailing. So I went to these guys, and I said to them, my my bosses, and I went, um, and I've done the beat for a few years now. It's tough i don't want to do it anymore i want to i want to do investigations so i did investigations for two years i did um some stuff with glenn mack now that got a lot of attention on teen physicians and um the corruption in there and then i did a whole spread on the corruption in sports memorabilia i went undercover um at the chicago national collectors convention and unmasked a lot of bad stuff that was going on there and um, and then I decided in 1988, Al comes to me one day and says, um, I got a meeting with us and Tom Brookshire. And you were, how old are you at this point? Um, 88, I was uh, 37. Okay. And he, and he said, um, I, think I, got, I think we got a shot to get a, a radio show. I hadn't given radio one iota of thought. I maybe had been a guest on three or four shows. I know one time I was at Ribbit with Steve Fredericks when I was covering the Eagles. But there was never even the wildest thought of going into radio. And Al Al goes, um, it's a brand new format, WIP. Tom Brookshire is making the decisions right now. And he doesn't have any programming. He has nothing. Uh, and, and I think I can get us a job. And I went, well, I mean, how much is going to pay? And it was $75 a shift, right? And, and I, which was actually not bad back then. So, you know, it's like a lot of things that happened with me in my life. Whatever Al said, I ended up doing, you know? <laughs> I always followed Al. On the show, it seems like, you know, I'm the one doing most of the work. But behind the scenes, Al's always the one coming up with the next plan. So... We met with Brookshire, and Al's literally, uh, you know Al, Al is making it up as he goes along. So how are you going to fill the hour, fellas? If I give you an hour of radio, what are you going to do? Oh, Al, 
Powell goes, oh, we got it covered. We're going to have guests on, other reporters. We're going to talk. We'll bring up all the big issues. And Brookie was like, he's just so accepting of stuff. And Brookie just goes, sure, why not? I love it. Let's do it. And um, and we literally, we met with him on a Thursday afternoon, and we were on the air on a Monday. But we were not aware until that Monday morning that there would be no professional broadcaster with us, that we were doing the show. It was called the Morning Sports Page, WIP. It was on at 9 o'clock, right after um, Steve Moderano's show. And um, we went there that day, and we found out like a half an hour before we were going on the air that it was both of us. And I was actually in the, the lead seat. I was because it was all his idea. I said, good, good luck. Go get him. And we don't know how to come in and out of commercials. We don't know how to do anything. And we, I mean, talk about starting from ground zero. But, you know, the whole time, you know what we said? We got the newspaper thing anyway. What's the difference? Who cares? This is not going anywhere. We'll just do this for a while. It'll be kind of fun. And and we had Al Incorporated. I was the brains behind that morning sports page. Al set up schedules with all the other writers. We only did a day or two a week. Other writers were on to fill the five days covering all the different sports. And, um, and you know, after a few months, it kind of got to be fun. We got a little better at it. We got to know a little more about it, but there was never a plan. No one ever was looking at radio as, as a, you know, a real career. It was just a side job. In 1990, Angelo faced a fork in the road, and he had to make one of the toughest decisions of his life. Ultimately, he accepted a full-time radio role at WIP, a job he thought would only last a couple of years. Literally 30 years later, and he's still anchoring the same show, the 94 WIP Morning Show, which is still, as of today, the number one rated morning show in the city of Philadelphia. I got called in by Tom Bigby, who is the program director, and um, they it, it, and a few of the other bosses, and they, they brought me in and they said, um, listen, uh, we think we, wanna, we want you full time. And it was ironic because just then I had decided I wasn't going to stay at the Inquirer. So I started to um, get the resumes out again. And I had a job offer at the L.A. Times. And they were really accommodating to me. I was going to L.A. And I kind of was, at that point, I was kind of exploring, could I actually work on the West Coast? What would that be like? It was like a really great challenge. And the job they offered me was a great job. It was the charges for half a year working out of San Diego and projects, the investigative stuff I was doing in the Inquirer for the LA Times. Six months charges, six months that. Couldn't have been a better job. I was going to do it. And then right then they call me with this meeting. And I did it for 20 grand. It ended up, I was making... 60,000, 55,000 um, at the Inquirer, pretty much the same in LA. And they offered me 75,000 at the Inquirer. And, and I went, oh, I can't turn down that kind of money. <laughs> and, and, I, and I took the radio job. And when I took it, it was with the, the idea a year or two, and then I'll make my move. But the, not yet. I, I think I want to just be in Philly a little longer. And and I took that job and and it's um, I'm in my 29th year doing it now. 
And I, and I worked with Brookie for the first two years and he taught me as much as you could learn in broadcasting in two years. He was, I never possibly could have done any of this if he didn't, you know, give me the blueprint on how to do it. And he did. And did you or, or Al who hired Rhea or whose idea was, we, we had, we, we had Rhea came in. God, she's been with us 20 years now, I guess. Um, a few years into it, we had, we used to use traffic people. Then we had Chris Gamble, who was kind of a traffic person, news person. And then Rhea, who had been a producer at the station, right. had moved on to, she was at a country music station, I think. And then we needed somebody to, to replace, it was either Chris or Max Vieira. There were two women that we had worked with prior to Rhea. And she came in, and from day one, we went, well, we upgraded that position because she was really great. She was great from day one. And she was she knew more sports than we did from the first day she came in. And and she probably has been there now, God, 20-some years. It's been a long time. My yes. God. It's all kind of blurring to me now. So now it's like three three decades yep. later. You're yep. still doing the show. The show's still incredible do you still love it do you still every day you still want to do it it's more challenging than it's ever been because i'm not young anymore and what's your daily routine like um it's so specific and precise it's remarkable <laughs> uh, honestly literally i'm home um 11:30 i um t- two days a week i work out in the exercise room over there with exercise bike and get a real sweat going um there are other days of the week i'm usually working on some other project i'm writing a column for the um phillyvoice.com um i'm in bed my wife said my wife is so perfectly trained weed on the dot of five o'clock every single day my dog is my dog knows when it's time to eat and i'm in bed I'm going into the room at 5.30. And what time do you get to Shower, the shave, go to bed, okay. go to sleep by 6.30. I read for a while. And I'm, I'm up by um, 2.45 the next morning, 3 o'clock at the latest. And that is locked in for the last 10 years. Exactly the same way. Is your key to... I don't know your longevity. Is it the aggressive approach? Is it the love for sports? Is it your preparation? Is it a mixture of it all? You know what? What? Yeah. what is- I guess it's a mixture. I, the love of sports has to be the first thing because I still love it, and I still it still means so much to me. You know, having just experienced the Eagles championship, um, you realize that you know, unlike a lot of jobs that I had and things that I did. I got tired of, I never got tired of sports and that's, that's a big part of it. And, um, I guess I like the prep. I like the, I like the regimentation of it. I guess I still, to answer your question, yeah, it is still fun. If it wasn't, I wouldn't do it. Honestly, I really, I'm really still getting something out of it. I don't know how much longer that'll be, but, um, at the, at this moment, I still enjoy going, getting up every day and doing it. Are you seeing with you know new media, millennials, internet stuff that aggressive approach is is changing like that? Is it's that harder not, now. Yeah. That's the point because you get set in your ways, and and it seems to me as I get older, I'm being bombarded by more different forms of media, and 
and I'm clearly not fast to adjust to them. You know, it took me a long time to get onto Twitter. Um, and, and the others, forget about it. I'm never going to get there, right? But it's like, wow. It, it, you know what it is? All of these innovations make you feel older and make you feel like, well, look, it's pretty obvious my time's passing me now. Now, it, clearly, there are, it's a whole new generation that's growing up on this stuff, and they're going to they're going to take over. And you know what? They should. The one thing that I feel guilty about still being here at sixty seven is that people people I should be clearing room out for somebody else to have a shot at it. Twenty eight years is a long time in one radio slot in one city, and um, it's it's coming. It's coming soon. But did, I don't know when. Did you model your, I don't know, uh, career or appearance after, you know, like people say Philadelphia's Howard Stern. Does that mm. offend you or does that is that a model of yours? Did you, Mike Francesa, is there anyone yeah. that you modeled after? No. Uh, the, the person who taught me how to do it was Tom Brookshire. And he taught me how to prep it. But he and I had quite different approaches to it because I was bringing this journalistic thing. And when I first started and and the interrogations and the things of that nature. And I still think I can go back to that journalism when I'm doing interviews. I think if you hear that, you'll still hear the newspaper guy doing it because I still pretty much do that the same way. But, um, no, I didn't. The reason I didn't is because I never intended to do it. I never had a – I had people in, in journalism that I respected tremendously. You know, Red Smith, uh, there were local writers and Rhode Island that I loved. The, some of the writers in, in um, Boston, Bob Ryan and Mike Madden were great writers. And and I admire them, Dan Shaughnessy. And, but no, there are none in radio because I never – I just fell on right. – I stumbled into it and then was doing it. Now, I'm sure – you know, by osmosis, some of the crazy stuff Stern did worked its way into some of the crazy stuff we've done. He created a, a culture that encouraged it in the 80s and 90s especially, and I'm sure I adapted somewhat to that. But no, there there are no role models because I had no intention to do it. And you it was, always wanted to, to weave in the, the risque stuff, the girl stuff, the wing ball stuff that just happened organically? The, the wing ball stuff happened completely organically. That was not part of the plan at all. And that was really more the brainchild of Al than mine. The risque stuff, um, and pop culture I, it's, and all it's that not stuff. complicated. When I got to the point in my job, maybe five years in, maybe even earlier, uh, now I'm making the decisions because Brookie's gone and I have to make these calls. And I'm just, I'm focused on what I was trained by. Tom Bigby, who was our program director back then, you have to be talking about what interests the people in the cars. And the people that are in the cars that you care about are men between the ages of 25 and 54. So if you're not doing stuff about women and you're not doing stuff that appeals directly to them, you're encouraging them to sit, find somebody who is. And I was also coming in in an era where you know, Stern dominated terrestrial radio. So I had to not be stern, but I also had to have enough of it in without being anywhere near as risque as him to let them know, oh, we care about this stuff too. We don't do it the way he does, but we do it. We do it. We have all those 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 themes circulating, and we worked it in, but I don't think we worked it in 
anywhere near the line the way he did. To get to this point, how much, and this is a tough question, but how much do you think is skill? How much is luck? How much does luck play a role? It's, it's, you know what it is? It's, it's, I don't know. I never, there's never been a time when I thought I was a gifted radio guy. Never. I did think I could, I was a good journalist. I think I was a good writer. I never, there's never been a time in this career when I said to myself, wow, you know, you really figured this out. <laughs> I really don't. I, I have really gone from year to year for all these years, um, just saying, you know what? I got a really cool job. I got to be happy that somebody gave me the chance to do this. I made a lot of money doing it. I, I lived a good life doing it. And enough people listened to me and liked what we were doing to keep me around for the better part of 30 years. But yeah, I don't, I don't think I can't give anybody great advice on it except yeah. I mean, you know what? It starts with the love you have for what you're doing. If, if you can love what you're doing and get somebody to pay you to do it, you've got it made. That's the key thing. Love what you do and get somebody to write you a check every couple of weeks and say, here, now you can live and do this. Because the, the, all the years that I've done this at WIP, getting up at 3 o'clock in the morning, I can tell you it's never felt like a job the way some of the earlier things I had to do did. This has never felt like a burden. It's never felt like work. And that's the key. If you can do that, you'll also do better because you love it. What's next? Five, ten years? Is in a beach on the West Coast somewhere? Yeah. Or what, what's, no, what's next? I, um, I'm really going almost month to month right now. I'd love to be able to do another year or so, maybe two at WIP. That would probably be the most I could handle. And then... Um, and then I'm going to try to write again. Um, maybe books. I've got a couple of irons in the fire for potential book projects. Um, but I think I'll wrap things up going back to what I started with, and that's writing. But that's, yeah, this will... The great thing is I'll be able to say when whenever this is over that I only worked at one radio station, WIP, and I have a debt to them and all the people that have been associated with it. And my loyalty to the station will be like a loyalty that I've had to no other place I've ever worked. And, and you know, if that's if, if I could do that, I, you know, 30 years at WIP, that's pretty good. And in turn, that infinity rubs off to the city of Philadelphia? In term, you know, do you- oh, absolutely. I, I've often said to my mom, who's still around at 96, Mom, wow. you should have moved to Philadelphia years ago, so I could have been born here. Because you don't, if you're not born here, you are at a disadvantage. But I have adopted this city. I'm so happy I ended up coming here. I'm so happy I didn't leave. And even though I've talked about going to the West Coast so I can have in and out burgers and sports events can be on earlier, in all likelihood, they'll bury me here. Angelo Cataldi of Sports Radio 94 WIP. Thanks so much for listening to the show. Please subscribe and rate the show on Apple Podcasts and iTunes. Tweet me about the show at A-N-D underscore Porter. And thanks to Eric Turdell Golden who helped produce the show. Up next, I sit down with the king of Philadelphia Radio, Howard Eskin, 
a Philadelphia native known for his fur coats and Twitter spelling errors. That's next. Spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 